Pictoplasm Advent Calendar Day 19, The Secret History of the Sword by J. Christoph Amberger. This is my favourite modern martial arts manual. Oh, it's, no, it's not a martial arts manual. It's, um, it's a non-fiction treatise on the swords, and it's really entertaining, very accessible, unlike some other denser tomes that I've got. My favourite historical treatise from 1599 is George Silver's Paradoxes of Defence. And I like Paradoxes of Defence for the same reason that I, that I like The Secret History of the Sword, in that it talks a lot of sense and it puts a lot of the martial arts of the time into context. Now, Silver, of course, was writing from the point of view of very end of the 16th century. Um, so it's you know, the beginning of the Renaissance swordplay. He was bemoaning the fact that um, London was being flooded by the um, Italian masters of the rapier. So a lot of what he wrote was uh, a, a rebuttal of those systems. But um, one of the reasons I really like Silver's uh, paradoxes is the the treatment of relative weapon lengths and the treatment of people of different sizes and the um, the absolute sort of laying down the truth of it that if you are shorter than somebody else, you are at a disadvantage no matter what you do. So uh, now the way I take that to be is that people who are taller than you can, can afford to be careless. People who are shorter that cannot afford to be careless, so their art must be perfect when they actually engage with you because you have an advantage. And that's pretty much what uh, we try to teach. But back to the secret history of the sword. In part, it's about Amberger's own recollections, but it's also puts it also talks a lot about the role of the sword in a um, in a social context. For example, there's a really nice section about the threat, which talks about injuries from swords and how on the stage you, the, the portrayal of, of a sword wound is almost always a thrust. There's a section in the threat called Death to Please the Eye, and uh, it says the thrust remained the most popular shortcut to Hades on stage. It credibly could claim mortal injury with a tastefully minimal display of gore. And in its linear line of travel, it also served as, a, as an allegory for divine justice if the bad guy was on the receiving end. And it talks about a lot of the deaths in Shakespeare, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Henry IV, Richard III. Um, oh, by the way, the, the I did see a presentation once that examined the fight between um, uh, Mercutio and Thibaut in, um, in Romeo and Juliet, and the suggestion that on one side we, we've got Thibaut using the, um, using the rapier, and on the other side we have Romeo using the shorter English sword. Now, um, I don't know how true that is. I think the, the analysis of it was, it did suggest that it was a contemporary commentary on those two relative sword plays, that, that it was exactly the same commentary on the relationship between Italian rapier and English, and English sword um, that Silver was making. Anyway, that's a digression. Amber's book goes on to say, stage deaths were clean deaths designed to gratify the audience aesthetically and emotionally. But... Death and injury in antagonistic combat, however, even in the somewhat refined environment of the duel, follows sobering and often sickening reality. So that section is on about the, the social sensibilities around seeing injury and the perception of threat, and that, that chapter is entitled The Threat. Later on, um, there's the finest chapter of all, in which Amberger breaks down four different kinds of combat. So you have agonistic combat and antagonistic combat. Agonistic, um, 
has low threat, and that is fighting for sport to a non-lethal end, and also stage combat. And then antagonistic combat is open battle and duels, both of which can have lethal ends. And you may ask, well, why make all those distinctions? And the reason it is, is because there is a, a different perception of stake, and that affects behaviour. Now, if you've done any kind of fencing or martial arts or whatever, particularly you know, with, with weapons, there is very little perceived risk in the training cell when you're, you have, you're training with blunts or rubber knives or whatever. And if at the end you make a mistake and you run onto somebody's point and get, you know, receive what should be a lethal wound, um, it, the consequence for you is tiny. And as a result, people will do stupid things in combat, particularly for people who only want to do HEMA stuff to do competitions. So what they want to do is they'll rush in and they will bash the opponent before they can get bashed. And this can be made even worse if the rules of any tournament don't take into account any afterblows or exchanges. Sport fencing is terrible for this because the whole, you've got the whole idea about priority. So the person who straightens their arm first gets the priority. And so if both sides hit off that... Um, it's the person who had priority who will win the point, despite the fact that they would have had a contretemps if, if they were fighting with sharps. But they're not fighting with sharps. They know that those are the parameters of the game. You know, so the sport is the game, and certain consequences are excluded. And that's also a problem when you're actually uh, teaching people because you, you can get to a stage where novices are getting to a stage of technical competence, which they try to employ in a stressful situation, and they get beaten by people who have no competence at all, either because they are new um, and just running into things blindly, or because they're experienced but they don't really care. They, they don't care about form. What they care about is winning the point. That's very dispiriting for a, a new student, and um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've seen some students quit because they were getting beaten in fights. But anyway, um, agonistic combat, there is a different set of stakes than, say, a duel in antagonistic combat. So you have one-on-one -on -one sport fighting is not the same as one-on-one -on -one duels to the death. Now, the distinction between battlefield fighting and duels or one-on-one -on -one is also really important. And uh, another thing I noticed from training people is that um, you can have people who are very good at fighting one-on-one -on -one against one other person and terrible at fighting in mass combat. Now, you can train people. I have trained people to fence effectively against more than one person. And all of that's about controlling the space and understanding who is going to be closest to you and who's the threat. And it's also you train people to move around. You train people not to wait for three people to come towards them, but instead to move towards the closest threat and try and take that out and to avoid getting cornered. So there's, there's lots of tactics, it, but it all comes down to a sense of space and awareness. And so when I look at um, the difference between a duel and a, uh, and a mass battle, in role-playing games, we often say that, oh, the important stats are, you know, strength and dexterity. Um, and that's only part of it. Dexterity and strength will help you hit hard enough and make precise actions and pull off a, uh, a technique reliably. But one of the things that is, isn't really appreciated is the importance of intelligence and um, perception 
sense of space and awareness of what is going on around you. And people who survive combats will have that awareness. And so knowing all of this has, has obviously shaped my opinions on role-playing game combat. My favourite ever combat system in role-playing games was in Christie's Three Rivers game. And that was pretty simple. What you had was um, you had a combat skill and then you had a weapon skill. The combat skill was all about controlling the combat. So it's, it's basically about getting initiative. And then the person who has initiative um, gets to make the attack and the person without initiative has to defend. And the whole back and forth between rounds is who can get the initiative in the duel. I mean, this very much represents a combat as I am fighting this one person or these couple of people. And to be honest, um, I think it's not become really hard to model mass battles. So if you want an exciting combat, it is best to say this character is facing off against that antagonist. Mason Steel that I've talked a lot about uses exactly the same concept as uh, this Three Rivers game, but it uses a card game. But Effectively, all you're doing in Lace and Steel is you're laying down cards to try and make attacks into the upper, middle, or lower line, and then your opponent has to defend against them. But again, it's about an exchange of who has the initiative. So one person has the initiative, they make an attack, and um, the outcome of that will either involve in them keeping initiative or uh, losing initiative to the opponent who then gets to make an attack back. And that back and forward... Um, it feels very much the way that I feel fencing should be, certainly the way that it looks in a good choreographed fight on the screen. And that's why I think it's such a good game. Not not because it's necessarily totally accurate, but but because it does so well at simulating. There are other later role-playing games like um, The Riddle of Steel. The Riddle of Steel was written by a guy called Jacob Norwood. He was one of John Clement's students in the early days of Western martial arts in the, um, they called themselves the Hacker um, Historical Armed Combat Association. Uh, and the Riddle of Steel is, was also highly thought of by some of the, the contemporaries of the Forge, I believe. I, I believe Ron Edwards had some good things to say about it. I am less impressed with it because it does a, it has a whole abstractive layer of you accumulate dice and you roll a certain number of dice and then and then you get to make your attack and it has a comp it has a and you, it it has um i think each combat round is split into two separate actions which makes some sense God, it's a long i never really tested it to destruction but i always found it was way more complicated than um too complicated to be anything other than appealing to other martial artists or people who are really into swords and actually just wanted to play a sword focused game which you know is cool um it still makes it an excellent game other indie games, there's Ron Edwards, um, was it Circle of Hands? I can't remember, um, where he designed the system to be quite energetic and, and unpredictable. Same thing is said about um, the Burning Wheel, which uh, I've tried to make sense of that system. And on paper, it, it looks all right. Um, but I think in play, it just gets so bogged down. It's and it's got this whole thing of you write down three moves in advance, and then you play them out. But then there's a whole load of cross-referencing of how many dice you're rolling in each case. Very, very tedious. I do know things like, um, what was it, RuneQuest 2 from Mongoose, which then became Legend and then became the design mechanisms versions like RuneQuest 6 and, and Mithras. Has a number of different combat manoeuvres and such. And that also seemed to be terribly complicated to me, although I think it's actually easier to visualise, in which means that 
it still makes it a good game because obviously the whole point of the game and the whole point of the combat maneuvers is going to be you know, simulating exciting fights. But on the whole, I am pretty underwhelmed with most role-playing combat systems and I think you need to make it as simple as possible, but you also need to... What you really need to express is the space between people and how closed in everything is and where the threats are coming from. And you need to make sure that the stakes are very obvious and how much danger everybody is in. Otherwise, you end up abstracting it to a whole load of numbers, which don't really keep everyone immersed into the into the combat they end up being a tedious grind that's my number one gripe against things like you know 3.5 edition dnd anyway that's a massive digression secret history of the sword very engaging read on sword and the social context which i think is is the most important thing when you're portraying people who carry swords around all right I could go on at length about this. I've already thought about, I thought of a number of game designs that involve rival dueling schools and um, an urban setting where people routinely get into fights and the consequences of that. But um, I'll save that for another time. Right, I think I should open the next window on the advent calendar. So, so just a moment. Ah, it's a gentleman's athletic support. Jolly good. Never leave home without one. All right, speak to you in the next one. Bye-bye. Fictoplasm Podcast. Words by Ralph Lovegrove. Music by Chris Zabriskie. Find out more at fictoplasm.net. Fictoplasm.